You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Uh, Lord, uh, your word is so precious to us, and um, we meet you in it. And so, Lord, be with us when our hearts are cold, uh, when they're wandering, uh, when our ears are stopped up. Uh, Lord, that by your spirit you would break through and that we would long to hear a word from you. Uh, because, Lord, we know it's exactly what we need to hear, whether we like it or not. And so, Lord, conform our hearts more and more into the heart that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as I mentioned last, uh, last time we talked about Exodus, that one of the things that God is doing with the people of Israel as he brings them out of Egypt is he's looking to make a people for himself. And, and he's doing that uh, by shaping them through adversity, the, the, the longing for water, the longing for food, and really getting uh, the people of Israel to a place where all they have is Jesus. All they have is Jesus. And, um, and as I said earlier on as well, that uh, Paul talks about it to the Corinthians, that the rock in the wilderness is Jesus, that is struck for us, and out of him flows living waters. So... Uh, Exodus is God's picture book of redemption. Uh, it's, you know, God is pretty consistent. I don't know if you knew this, uh, but he is pretty consistent in that uh, how he delivers his people out of Egypt is the same way he delivers us even today. And so the lamb that was slain uh, is Jesus for us. And so he speaks in shadows and types. And so if you really want to get an idea of God's redemptive power and what he's about when he tries to redeem us, uh, Exodus is a really good place to go. And the people of Israel now arrive at Sinai. If you remember, they've just had a battle with the Amalekites. Remember, Aaron and Hur went up on the mountain with him and held up his arms and made him a seat. And uh, we skipped over, uh, uh, and I'm not really going to get into it today, uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, has some really good advice uh, about how to share the burden of leadership, uh, and, and that's always very wise. But I really do want to focus in on uh, chapter 19 and tw- chapters 19 and 20 as they arrive at Sinai and, uh, and God gives them uh, the law. And so as they arrived there on the third new moon, this is chapter 19, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, what I love about that is that they're already in the wilderness, but now God is saying, this is wilderness, wilderness, right? This is, you know, I don't, I didn't grow up in Birmingham, but when, uh, when we would say that something was very far away, we would say it's off, you know, it's from, they're from off, which might as well be Sinai, Egypt. Well, so they go out in the wilderness of Sinai and they set out for Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness and there Israel encamped before the mountain. Now, as I said before, you know, there's, there's some debate over um, uh, what the mountain is called, where the mountain is, is located, but we know at this point it's, it's Sinai um, as they're at this mountain. And they called out to the mountains. The Lord called to Moses. I'm sorry. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And why did he go up to God? Because the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, 
Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, and where is God? Where has he brought them to himself? Wilderness. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words and, uh, that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Man, haven't you done that? I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, and then I don't. Uh, and Moses reported the words of the, I, I love this too. In case you didn't hear, Lord, I'm reporting to you the words of the people to back to you. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And so uh, there's a time of consecration and uh, the Lord is going to come down upon Sinai in the sight of all the people. And God commands anybody who touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And Moses is called up uh, into the mountain. And uh, what does God say to Moses when he goes up on the mountain? Yeah, he gives, he gives the law uh, to them. So this is really their constitutional convention, right? This is, you know, it's one thing to have the Declaration of Independence, right? We've got that. We're independent from Egypt. Uh, but what was it that Ben Franklin said after they uh, signed the Declaration of Independence? Um, what is it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You can have it if you can keep it. And so this really is God's keeping uh, this is God giving them the law and says, this is your charter for how you are to live as a people. And uh, a couple uh, notes on this. Uh, how is uh, the law to be used? Well, in the first instance, it reveals to us the wor- It reveals to us God's will. All right, so if you want to know how God feels about particular things, you can look in the law. Now, I do love that the articles of religion that define what we believe as Anglicans say that, uh, that when it comes to matters ceremonial, uh, that the law has been abolished. Why? Because it's actually been fulfilled in Jesus. Right? That's, that's what, so uh, we no longer have sacrifices. Why? Jesus. Right. We, that's right. Um, and, uh, and also uh, those other laws like uh, ceremonial laws, uh, beyond that, like dietary laws, uh, laws around, um, uh, what kind of clothes you wear and some of the things that, uh, that we're going to, uh, see later on in Exodus. Uh, those are our laws that God created, uh, in order to make his people different in order to make those people different. But then Jesus comes along and says what? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. Uh, Because there was this mistaken understanding that if you just kept the dietary laws and all those kinds of things, uh, which, I mean, relatively speaking, wouldn't be that hard. Now, to not eat shellfish and barbecue, not interested, right? Not interested in that that route. Uh, But... You know, keeping uh, those laws uh, are, are not all that difficult uh, outwardly as much as they are 
inwardly and what they mean. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 10, God gives the vision to Peter. Remember, the sheet is displayed before Peter, and God says, the Lord Jesus says, get up and kill and eat all of these things. And Peter says, but they're all really dirty. And Jesus says, don't call anything I've ever made uh, unclean. Why is that? Because now, all of a sudden, God's plan for salvation is, which began uh, from the very beginning of time, but worked its way through the people of Israel, is now for who? Everyone. It's for everyone. And so now all of a sudden the gospel has gone out and there was a controversy in the early church about whether it was appropriate to eat uh, certain kinds of food. And we get the definitive word from the Lord that says, um, no, that you're free to do that. But the commandments called moral, like the Ten Commandments, uh, those are still very much in effect, uh, whether we like it uh, or not. And of course, uh, they're good because they reveal to us uh, God's will. Uh, secondly, they reveal to us a need for a savior. You know, I love the encounter that Jesus has in a couple of the gospels with what, who we call the rich young ruler. Do you remember him? Where Jesus comes up to, uh, a man comes up to Jesus and, and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, has a little pre-conversation with him that says, um, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And he said, you know the commandments. And Jesus actually begins to uh, enumerate really just a, uh, not all of the commandments, but, but the ones that uh, are, are probably a little bit easier to keep. And the man says, all of these I have kept since my youth. And Jesus says, well, go and sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and then come follow after me. And the man goes away sad because it turned out that any outward conformity uh, to the commandments is not necessarily an indication of your inward conformity uh, to the commandments. And that's really what Jesus is concerned about. And so they show us the need uh, for a savior. And so you may outwardly conform to honoring your mother and father, but in your heart, you resent the heck out of them. Uh, and, and you really don't like the fact uh, that things are where they are. Um, you're told uh, not to uh, covet uh, your neighbor's wife, uh, which means covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, uh, but you find it impossible not to do that, even though outwardly uh, you've not done anything to display that. Uh, you uh, may not have necessarily uh, stolen anything, uh, but, uh, but your heart is ready to, uh, to get what's yours. So there are any number of things uh, that happen within our own hearts that would certainly undo uh, us when it comes to conforming uh, to the law. And uh, finally, uh, they do give us an idea of how it is that we ought to live with one another. And this at one point in time was a universally, universally accepted principle. If you go to the University of Virginia today, the old law school is now a science building. And uh, you walk through this beautiful atrium, and on it, uh, up in the atrium, are these murals. And uh, one of the most prominent murals is Moses here at Sinai receiving the law. Um, so even uh, Mr. Jefferson's university, who was certainly no friend of Christianity, uh, felt the need to acknowledge that so much of our law is based on what? Right, how we ought to live, God's law. Um, 
And so uh, it, it, it also shows us how we ought to live and relate to one another. So let's, uh, let's take a look at, um, at these commandments and, uh, and see uh, what God might be saying uh, to us this morning. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, how many times have you heard that in Exodus? Every time. Right? But God is establishing himself. I'm not, I'm, this is not arbitrary. Uh, this, I, I am your God. Uh, I'm the one who has delivered you uh, from the bondage of slavery. And I'm the one that's going to sustain you in the wilderness. Because, of course, they haven't, got, they haven't arrived at Canaan yet. And so I'm reminding you of my goodness and my graciousness. And I want you to trust me. And isn't that one of the hardest things to do? Like, especially in this day and age, we look at some of these commandments and we think... Well, surely God doesn't mean that, because if I act this way, the world's going to take advantage of me. Uh, the world is going to think I'm crazy. Uh, and God is saying, but I'm the one who brought you out of the bondage of slavery to sin. Do you really think that I've brought you this far just to leave you? And so you shall have no other gods before me. God is reminding the, uh, his people here, not just the Israelites, but us today, that he is, I am. I am. And the great act of salvation of bringing the Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt. Now, they're still in the wilderness, and as they receive God's law, this place where they have to rely on God for everything, food, water, protection. And who is able to sustain a nation of people in the desert? I am. I am. You have no other hope. And God tells them, you shall not have any other gods. I alone am able and I alone deserve to be worshipped. I alone can command men and women to follow me. All others are false idols that lead to destruction. And so here we are in the name of the living God, the great I am. But who really has control of our lives? Who is it that determines how we live today? Is this great I am our first consideration? I mean, I, I've really been struck recently as I've been praying. Uh, I pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Uh, but for some reason recently, that, that phrase, give us, today our, this day, give us this day our daily bread. How many of us have actually had to rely on God to feed us every day? None of us. And so I've stopped to think about that and say, God, I want my heart to understand what it means that you are I am and you provide for me everything. And I want to rely on you and know you as the only source for my sustenance, my life, my everything. So when I say give us this day our daily bread, I want to know that and experience that. Because frankly, I'm not worried whether you give me daily bread or not. I'm going to figure it out. Right? I've got a lunch in the refrigerator. There's a grocery store down the road. I have money in my pocket. But God is calling us to that kind of dependence upon him. And of course, there are a myriad of things that are competing for our attention in this world. And this is one of the craziest things I've heard in a long time. But where my second grader came home the other day, uh, about two weeks ago, and she said, so-and-so got up in the middle of class and said they don't believe in God, they believe in Zeus. And I said, well, okay. But then she came home 
late last week and said another boy has now declared his belief in Zeus. So there's some sort of Greek revival going on in the school system where Zeus is back. Uh, and, and, you know, we kind of laugh and, and, and kind of roll our eyes. But I, I was, Ware said, but I told him that Jesus is the only God. There's no such thing as Zeus. And it struck me that here I'm kind of rolling my eyes and, and chuckling and saying, ah, they're just eight years old. But to have an eight-year-old declare an allegiance to a false god, if that doesn't break my heart and send me to my knees, that God would reveal himself to them as there I am. And it is ridiculous and desperate to say, well, I believe in Zeus now. But it's just as desperate and ridiculous to say, I believe in myself. There, it, it doesn't matter whether it's Zeus, whether it's our own uh, ability to sustain ourselves, or any other false god that, that masquerades as the one true god, but in fact is demonic. It's all idolatry. And God is saying, I am the only one. I'm the only one who's able to actually rescue and save you. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Uh, the command given here is not just about making a representation of a form, a, a representation of God in the form of an animal as in the case of the, the golden calf, which we're going to get to uh, in a little bit, because most of y'all may know if you've read that story, they really thought that that was an appropriate representation of the God that they were serving. They didn't see it as, as other from him, uh, but in fact, any uh, representation of, of God. Uh, and it, it really means that when we make an image of God, uh, it's the product of our own limited human imaginations. Um, J.I. Packer, who wrote Knowing God, said that the most hate mail that he got from that book, which is now sold into the millions, was over the little blurb that he did on idolatry and making images of God and even images of Jesus. And I do appreciate that no one got mad at me when I said that God doesn't look like Burl Ives when pointing to the window uh, over Jesus' baptism. Um, but if we want to press it a little bit farther... That's not what Jesus looks like either. That's, that's not uh, what, what Jesus looks like. And, and it's hard for us not to look at those images and realize that they are powerful, uh, but they really don't capture um, what Jesus actually looked like. Now, the upside to this is that when you see Jesus, you will recognize him. You, there's no mistaking him. You will know where he is. As Johnny Cash said, uh, when the man comes around, every hair on every arm will stand up. Uh, so you'll know who he is. Uh, but any likeness of God provokes him to jealousy uh, because those of us who gaze upon him are given a false impression of, of who he is. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's, that's a hard line uh, for us uh, to follow. And uh, I, I do uh, appreciate, it's kind of funny in our culture. Did y'all ever uh, 
watch the movie The Robe or, um, or any of those you know, big epic things that happened back in the 50s and, and 60s, did you notice they never showed Jesus' face? Why? This commandment. This commandment. And that was actually one of the most controversial things about Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, was, was actually trying to depict uh, Jesus uh, in a way. And, um, and I'm not an iconoclast in any way. I'm just holding that out there that we just need to be very careful uh, when, um, you know, if you're praying to Jesus and you have a particular image of him in your mind, you might want to ask God to sort of block that out uh, a little bit and to not relate to him as a caricature, but to relate to him as he is, as the great uh, I am. Um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, taking the Lord's name in vain is not just an obscenity. Um, you know, if, if we're using, um, you know, I've noticed uh, the Christian way to take the Lord's name in vain is just to say, OMG. Um, uh, or even, uh, I hear it all the time now, where instead of saying, oh my G-O-D, we say, oh my gall, like G-A-W, as if like that's, like God's like, oh gall, okay, uh, we, we've got that. And in our house, uh, just profanity in general, we call lazy words. Um, but uh, God doesn't like them very much. And uh, if we are taking the Lord's name in vain, we are certainly in violation of this commandment. Uh, but more than just profaning God's name, to take the Lord's name in vain means to treat God as empty. And of course, that's what, what vain means, right? Right. To, to be vain, that's what vanity means, is that there's an emptiness to it. So what we're doing is, so I think it's perfectly appropriate when you get shocking news about the death of a loved one, or you see an accident and you cry out, oh my God, that is a perfectly appropriate prayer. You're not taking the, you're, you're calling upon the Lord, aren't you? Oh my God, come swiftly, minister to me, minister to those people. Uh, but to just, you know, when it comes to something that's, that's frivolous or that you don't particularly like and to take the Lord's name in that way means that you're treating God as empty. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when you enter into the family of God by adoption through his grace and mercy, you become a child of the king. And this commandment is a warning to us about living as if that's not true. It's a reminder of whose we are and what we represent in the world. Any number of, a number of us can say, but I don't use the Lord's name in an inappropriate way. But do our lives demonstrate vainness? Does our life point to Jesus or is our relationship with God in vain? Does it mean anything? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, well, for Christians, uh, we no longer keep the Jewish Sabbath day of Saturday, but we do have the Lord's day. And God commands us to set aside a day of rest. And if we're honest, this is the commandment that we care least about. Between our busy schedules and our capitulation to culture pressures, none of us is very willing to say, I'm really good at this commandment. So many of us won't hesitate to skip church on a Sunday because we had a big weekend uh, or have other commitments. Now, I will say uh, pre-COVID, uh, there was a very clear formula for church attendance um, if Alabama or Auburn were playing at home. And if it was a late game, if it was a late game 
and Alabama lost, which of course is unusual, but if they lost, we were going to get a bounce back in attendance. Why? Because people needed a little grace, right? They needed a, they needed a, a, they needed a balm. So the saddest service I've ever been a part of next to very tragic funerals is the morning after uh, Alabama lost to LSU uh, at 9-6. And uh, in the what, double overtime, or was it, what was it? Oscar, you know, just tell me. Yeah. And, um, and I was invited to the game, but they couldn't promise that I could get back in time for 7.30 church. Right? It was total mayhem. And the next day, a guy walked out of the church who's a godly man and looked at me and he said, it's all over. <laughs> it's all over. But of course, that was Good Friday, right? Because what happened in the national championship game? Right? They beat LSU. Um, well, we all have excuses as to why we're going to miss church and, 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 and why we have other, other commitments. Uh, I was in uh, another funny example of this is I was waiting in line for one of my daughter's dance recitals where it was sort of first come, first served. And I grabbed a quick lunch after church and uh, ran over there to save seats. And uh, next to me in line was an adventer. And, uh, and they said, oh, we were going to come to church this morning, but, but we had this. I said, what do you think I've been doing all day? And, 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 and here I am. <clears throat> I went to church three times today. Um, so, you know, gathering together as God's people is, is something that has really become, it doesn't really mean anything to us. And I don't think that we understand the gift that we have as a church family. We take it for granted. I mean, there are people right now all over the world um, that have to meet in secret, who risk their lives to go and be with other Christians. And we're willing to skip it because we got a big day or we had a big night uh, the night before. And so in the West, I think that we've lost sight of what it really means to be given a church family uh, by God. Um, and very few of us uh, are willing to actually take the rest that we need. We really, I, I think that that's one of the biggest things that I've seen is that, that we just, we need a rest and we don't need to be going all of the, all of the time. I'm even God who doesn't need a rest. What did he do on the seventh day? God rested. Maybe we ought to pay attention to that. And I don't think that that means not going to movie theaters or, or not playing cards. I'm not talking to going back to that sort of uh, understanding of honoring the Sabbath, but just taking it easy and, and, and getting out of the rat race of the day and resting. Uh, but very few of us are going to miss getting our children to sports practices or events uh, for fear of them sitting out of the game that week. And uh, why? Uh, because frankly, you and I, uh, we fear coaches and social ostracization. Uh, that's a hard word for me to say. Uh, we fear that more than the living God. That's just the truth of it. And, uh, and I get told all that, well, that's just the world in which we live in. And I say, I know. We were told about it in the Bible. Right? Even then, this is countercultural. Even then, this is countercultural. And so I, I have great respect uh, for, for Jewish folks who do honor their Sabbath. I don't know, if you're in this room, I'd love for you to raise your hand. Uh, somebody here at the Advent grew up 
over by the old synagogue next to where St. Peter's Anglican Church is, where they built that big house. Um, and the Jewish neighborhood that was predominantly Jewish there, uh, this person who grew up at the Advent uh, or is an Adventer now would get paid by the Jewish families to come and turn their ovens on. Uh, because she could do it, but they weren't allowed to do it. I'm not advocating a return to that, but they took it seriously, right? We're, we're just not, we're not going to do this. And we're going to have time as a family and we're going to be together as a family. And, uh, and we're going to honor that. And so if you want to do that in your own family, one of the ways I would encourage you to do that is to, um, is to, is to have a time of worship Sunday evening with your family. Sing a song together, open your Bibles, read it together, and just reflect on the week of how God has worked in your life. When did you feel closest to him? When did you feel uh, uh, far away from him? Uh, that, that's a wonderful uh, thing to develop and uh, to facilitate in the life uh, of your family. And so remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, the remaining commandments, uh, which I'm going to spend a little bit of time on, uh, honor your father and mother. Of course, this is the commandment with the promise that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I think that this is probably the commandment I struggled with uh, most of all uh, when I was growing up uh, because there was a point in time where I was a Christian and my parents were not. And... Uh, in my own uh, self-centeredness, which was sanctified, um, I thought, well, they're not Christians, so they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, do I, if, do I need to honor parents who may even be dishonorable? And do you know what God says? Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, that doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're willing to break God's commandments, to go against his word. That's not what it means. Uh, but the importance of, of moms and dads. And do you notice that it says honor your mother and father and not honor your parents? Do you know that the Bible has absolutely nothing to say about parenting? It has a lot to say about mothering and fathering. Have you ever noticed that? That when the Bible speaks about it, it talks about fathers and mothers. And, uh, and so this is, this is part of God's plan. And uh, there is something about dads and there is something about moms uh, that is inherent uh, to the person and to the office. And, and God says we should honor that, uh, that we should honor that. Um, so honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. Now we're kind of getting into the territory of uh, this is where the rich young ruler was saying, yeah, I've done these, these pretty well. And, um, and I'm very careful to say this. Uh, most of us in here have probably not murdered anybody, uh, but it's entirely possible that somebody has. Um, and, um, and it's amazing to me um, that uh, Karl Barth once said that the easiest congregation that he ever preached to were prisoners, especially the most hardened of criminals, the murderers. And he was asked, why is that? And he said, I didn't have to convince them they were guilty. And so, of course, when we're talking about murdering, it's not just about taking the physical life of someone. Uh, we're talking about hating our brother in our heart, hating our sister in our heart. Uh, spiritual assassination, uh, which is often manifested as gossip, right? And, and I probably understand there's a little bit of gossip going on uh, about me uh, right now. Um, and I just would ask that you keep it uh, above board. Don't murder me. 
You shall not commit adultery. Again, you could easily say, well, I didn't sleep with so-and-so's wife or I didn't sleep with so-and-so's husband. Uh, But um, if you've lusted after someone in your own heart, you're just as guilty as the person who did. And and why? Um, and I think that the murder and the adultery thing goes together, uh, because when we commit adultery, we're actually murdering someone else. So if I sleep with a woman who is not my wife, I'm behaving in a way as if her husband doesn't exist. I've murdered him in my heart. And um, in this day and age, uh, this is a commandment that everybody sees as old-fashioned, and yet. Um, it's, it's really important um, that, that we model this uh, to our children and in the life uh, of the church. And, um, and I, I've realized that um, as I've been married, marriage is really hard. And, um, and I have a friend who was thinking about getting divorced. And, uh, and he said, you know, I've realized that in divorce, all I'm really looking for is a better version of my current wife. I mean, that's really, I mean, there are reasons for divorce. I'm not dismissing that, but so often uh, the longing just to have a better, more improved version of the person you're currently married to um, is, is the myth of adultery, uh, of I'm willing to sell myself short or to sell out for this one moment when it just leaves a wake of destruction uh, in its path. Now, of course, I do want to say to murderers and to adulterers, um, these are not the unforgivable sins. Fitz Allison, when he was the rector of Grace Church in Manhattan, um, there was a woman in the congregation uh, who had had a torrid affair with someone of prominence in the congregation. And she came in to see Fitz, and this is written in a book, so I I can say this, uh, and, and said to him, you know, we've got communion coming up this Sunday, but, and I haven't been back to church since all of this came, but I just want to reconcile with Jesus and I feel terrible and I want to repent and I, I just, I don't know what to do. And, and, and I want to come back this Sunday, but we're having communion and, and I don't want to be a hypocrite and, and go up and receive communion and fits of course to the right thing and said, you know, you're forgiven in Jesus. You know, he's the God of umpteenth chances. And if you're coming before me and you're saying that you're repenting of, of your past, um, sins. Uh, I want you to know that you're restored and forgiven in Jesus. So this woman came on Sunday and she went up and took communion. And immediately following the service, there was a beeline uh, of a group of parishioners who made their way to Fitz. And they said, what in the world does that woman think she's doing? And Fitz told them, look, she's repentant. She's been restored to the fellowship of the church. This is a demonstrable sign that she's walking in unity with us. And, uh, And after all, Jesus forgave the woman caught in adultery. And someone looked at Fitz and said, yeah, and I don't think much for him for doing that either. <laughs> um, and of course, these sins which we're talking, or these commandments we're talking about now, are very public things. And, and they are grievous and obvious sins. And yet, they're certainly not unforgivable. And and what God is trying to say is that no matter where you are in terms of all of this stuff, I am. You can come back to me. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not not covet. All of these things fall into uh, the same uh, category. 
And uh, I, I do think that these commandments are particularly powerful um, because these are things that ought to be obvious to us in the moment. You know, we might try to justify it, but when we steal something, we know it's not ours. We know exactly what we're doing. Uh, when we're bearing false witness against our neighbor, we, we know what we're doing. When we're coveting, when we're, we're committing adultery, when, uh, when we're murdering, uh, we know what we're doing by and large. And so uh, these are the things uh, that, uh, that tend to hit home uh, pretty closely because of what we are learning and what we learn in the New Testament uh, about uh, the real condition of the heart as it stands before these commandments. And again, none of these sins is unforgivable. In fact, the transgression of them ought to thrust us into the arms of Jesus. And so this is good news for idolaters, profaners, Sabbath breakers, rebellious children, murderers, adulterers, thieves, liars, and coveters. Uh, that's what heaven is full of. Hell is full of the self-righteous. And those who were once alienated from God now have come near as the demands of the law, the consequences of the law, the condemnation of the law has been laid upon Jesus at the cross. He's taken it all upon himself. Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His perfect obedience to God's commands has now been given to us, and we are clothed in his righteousness. The accusation of the law has now fallen silent in the drowning roar of God's grace to us in Jesus. These commandments are not the measure of one's faith. One could outwardly conform to each and every single one and still be alienated from God. We learn that throughout the book of Exodus. And if being able to follow the Ten Commandments is the standard for Christianity, none of us is a Christian. They express the will of God for his people, who are called to be different, and they drive us to Jesus, in whom we find mercy and forgiveness for our sins. And so these commandments are still very much in, in force today, and uh, and uh, it would be great. Uh, I still have up in my office uh, a plaque of the Ten Commandments that belonged to my great-grandmother. Remember, every grandma had one of those in the house, the, the Ten Commandments? And, uh, and I, I still have it up there uh, as a reminder of the God that I serve, uh, but above all, uh, the mercy of Jesus. Questions, comments, concerns? Andrew? Oh, yes, Clark. And Sorry, then we'll get to... Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, Clark. Uh, Clark was making the point that um, the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of things the Holy Ghost would never do. And, um, and that getting outside of God's will uh, and acting in the name of God is taking his name in vain as, as well, which happens in any number of ways uh, in, in the life of the history of the church, whether that be the Crusades uh, or whether that, that is contemporary debates uh, around God's will for the family. Cumby? Um, I was surprised that, that there was no, when I was rereading the Ten Commandments that to love your neighbor as yourself is not there. Yeah, you know, I heard it described. Yeah, uh, in a couple thousand years. Um, you know, I, I do think that um, 
it's there. It's there. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, and so if you, I heard it described one time that in the Old Testament, it's kind of the bronze rule, you know, uh, an eye for an eye, right? Meaning, you know, you're going to kind of get what happens to you. It's everything. And if you keep reading these laws, it's all about kind of keeping things even in order to maintain uh, civil order in the life of these wandering people. Um, uh, but then we, we do get on to, you know, Jesus saying uh, the golden rule, which we've articulated. Uh, but then ultimately we get this platinum rule, uh, which is love one another as I have loved you, which right? we, we hear in First John. So, yeah, and, and that's right. I mean, it orders how we. Re- so the first half, by and large, I mean, it's, it's not an even split, but is, is how we relate to God. And the second half is how we relate to our neighbors. And so it, you know, if you want to love your neighbor, uh, not killing them, not committing adultery, not stealing or bearing false witness is a pretty good start. Yeah, Carolyn. Hmm. A harder thing and a more realistic thing. Yeah, I don't think that the commandment can lead to love. Right? That's not that's not the job of a commandment. Um, that's not the role of the law. But I, I think that there I, I do think that um, Loving your parents is, is something that we, we ought to do as well, because if we're simply honoring them, you know, and again, it, every situation is different because you might have parents that are really dastardly and awful and doing terrible, awful things. Um, but that's a really interesting, you know, distinction to make, honoring versus loving. Yes, Lauren. Uh, just thinking yeah. Right. That sounds like love your neighbor as yourself. I mean those guys too. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that Jesus dealt with is that the commandments had been reduced to the lowest common denominator. Right? So not murdering was, I haven't killed anybody. Um, Rather than the sort of proactive side of it of, like what 1 John talks about, you know, how can you see your brother in need? It's not enough to say, well, I love them. (laughs) Or or I hope things get better for them, it's, it's actually going the extra mile uh, and, and loving them through whatever it is that they're, they're struggling with. And so, yeah, the idea of the law is it's not just a bare minimum of commitment. It's, it really is how does, this, how does this manifest itself in the life of, of God's people. And I think in the West, it's, it's terrible. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that y'all are encountering right now um, is uh, I think some of y'all are like are, are feeling I don't know what to say to Andrew. And so I'm not going to talk to Andrew. And that's not you being unloving. You just don't know what to say to me. And I think that in some ways in the West, that's true when somebody has a, an immediate family member die. You know, so if you've ever experienced that and you wonder, why didn't anybody call me? It wasn't because they didn't love you. It's just they didn't know what to say. And as Christians, we've got to get over that. And sometimes we don't need to say anything other than I'm here for you and I'm praying for you. But I want you to know you're not alone.
Oscar. I'll talk. Um, uh, so we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus, which is God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. But then you sort of have the flip side of the conversation in Deuteronomy, where right. Moses comes down to the Israelites, but all said, "Yeah, I'm not going up there." That's, you know, right. And he relates the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. But when he does it, I've always been curious about this. I think it's Deuteronomy five. He introduces it by saying, "God is making a covenant with." And he even distinguishes, like, I'm not talking about that other covenant. I'm not talking about the covenant with Abraham. I'm talking about right now, here today, right. in, with these Ten Commandments, God's making a covenant with you. And I know this is like taking you off script a little no, bit. No, 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 no. Insight into what, what Moses is implying there or saying in terms of these Ten Commandments not to a covenant between God and, and the, the Israelites who were there. Yeah, so it's uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a reiteration of, of the commandments that, that Oscar is, is uh, talking about it. And it really is a, um, in, in many ways, they do, he, yeah, he broadens it. Uh, he's, he's, God is now saying, this is, this, I'm going to give you a little bit more detail as to what this looks like. So, for instance, um, uh Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Right? So, and then it even goes down and gets involved with, with employees and, and sons and daughters and, and, and all of that. And I, I think that... Um, I think that that's helpful. I, I think that God is sort of preaching himself of, of here's, here's how this is going to look like and manifested in, in, in your life. And also, there's a lot of water over the dam at this point uh, in the life of Israel. When they're out in the wilderness, I think this is another thing. When they were just sort of self-contained in the wilderness, there's a sort of nonchalance like, yeah, of course I'm going to do this. So you may have experienced this if you've lived, it, lived in an intentional Christian community like in college. right? You're just constantly surrounded by Christians but the moment that you get out and you're in the world, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit harder and uh, to define what it looks like to honor the Lord. So I think that that's one thing uh, that's, that's happening. And, and also the need we have to be reminded over and over again. Uh, I think that that's one thing I've learned being here at the Advent is that, you know, it's easy to think, oh, you've preached on this once or twice or even three times before, but until y'all start to roll your eyes, I'm not going to stop, right? I mean, it's, it, we just need to be reminded over and over again, and I think that that's also what's happening. Well, we've got to go to uh, 1115 service, uh, but let me pray for us as we depart. Oh, Lord. Um, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Have mercy upon us and write all these thy laws in our hearts, we beseech thee. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent Birmingham.